you have a New Testament, would you turn to the uh, sixth chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 25. I promised you that tonight I would name the person who gives me the most trouble in this church. I'm going to do that in just a minute. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, this is Matthew 6, 24, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not the life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to his lifespan, 18 inches, to his height? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O man of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think there are some things that we know, but we don't know we know. Um, Jesus was um, with His disciples in the upper room, and um, He said, The way you know, and I go, prepare a place for you, and you know the way I go and where I'm going. Thomas said, We don't know the way where you're going. Who was right? Well, you say Jesus was right. He's always right. That's true. I think they were both right. I think Thomas knew something he didn't know he knew. <laughs> and perhaps what we need to discover tonight is what we already know to be true. We need to know that we know what we know. And that's not just double talk. I think that we need to know that we know that before we can ever really be used of God, we have to get right with ourselves. Now I've known that all along. But the biggest, the person that I have the biggest problem with in this church is me. J. Harold Smith was for a long time pastor at the First Baptist Church in Fort Smith. He was a powerful preacher and a powerful man. He wielded great authority and power in that town. Somebody said that you have to go a hundred miles from Fort Smith to get out, of, get out from under the influence of J. Harold Smith. I mean, he called black, black, and white, white, and he didn't care who he hurt, whose toes he stepped on. 
One week he announced that he was the next Sunday he was going to preach on the person in the church that caused him the most trouble. Well, that could have been a lot of folks. I mean, there were a lot of people that didn't like J. Harold Smith. And he put it in the paper. It's next Sunday, the pastor, First Baptist Church, is going to name the man that gives him more trouble than anybody else. And needless to say, it was packed out. And they were anxious to hear who that man was. And J. Harold Smith got up and said, The man in this church who gives me the most trouble is, the envelope please, is J. Harold Smith. I read a sign one time, or heard about it, it said, If you kicked in the seat of the pants the person that gives you the most trouble every day, you wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. I want to talk to you tonight about how to get right with yourself. And I believe that before any of us can ever be used of God, we're going to have to learn how to get right with ourselves. Number one, you might want to jot this down. Value yourself. Value yourself. Too many people place a low value on themselves. Jesus said in this marvelous Sermon on the Mount, He talked about these sparrows, these birds, and He said, Are you not worth much more than they? There's a kind of a misconception, I think, that's going around, that is, if you think much of yourself, you're not spiritual. The, least you, the, the less you think of yourself, the more spiritual you are. And so we go around... Uh, uh, talking ourselves down. Oh, I'm not worth anything. I'm not any good. And we have this worm theology, you know, that the songwriters written about. Uh, saved a, a worm such as I. And we just kind of go around thinking that, that if I can just convince people that I feel worthless, that that'll make me spiritual. That doesn't make you spiritual. You need to value yourself as somebody important. And I think that in all the problems that I counsel week after week, and I counsel hundreds of times, I have counseled hundreds of times in the ministry, the biggest problem that people have is, the, is at this very point to feel self-worth, to feel that they're valuable. I don't know where we got this idea. I think our mothers and fathers must have taught us that we're never to feel good about ourselves, never to brag on ourselves. Don't ever say you anything good about yourself. That's bragging. And you just get in a group sometime and just go around the circle and ask people to tell what they don't like about themselves. And they can give you a list that long. Then you ask them, tell me something you like about yourself. You, you just admire about yourself. And you put it at the end of this statement. I admire this about me. And you watch people get tongue-tied. I mean, they can't think of a thing. Because somehow we've just kind of programmed our mind to think that the less you think of yourself, the more spiritual you are. It's a bunch of nonsense. I think there are three things that prove your worth. The first is creation. You turn to the first chapter of Genesis and find that you are the crown of creation. And you turn to the second time and you'll find that you are the center of creation. You're the crown of creation in the first chapter and you're the center of creation in the second chapter. You're the height of creation in the first chapter and you're the heart of creation in the second chapter. And all of God's creative activity centers around you. 
And when God created this world and all that is in it, He was just waiting for the opportunity to come to the crown of creation, which is you. You have value because of creation. Secondly, you have value because of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what redemption means? It means that God saw that I was fit to save. God saw that I was worthy of salvation. And way back before I was ever born, God planned my salvation and yours, our redemption. Now, He knew we were going to fall and fail before He ever created us. And yet He created us anyway. That seems kind of uh, strange, doesn't it? Let me ask you, would you embark on a project if you knew before you embarked on it that it was going to fail? I don't think you would. I mean, would you, would you take all of your life savings and invest in a piece of property if you knew six months after your investment you were going to lose everything you invested? You were going to lose that property? I don't think you'd do that. That'd be kind of weird, kind of dumb. Now, when God created us, He knew that we were going to sin. Sometimes people ask me, why did God create us? Why did He give us temptation if He knew we were going to sin? Before we were ever created, God knew that His project was going to fall, that it was going to go bad, and yet He created us anyway. And He created us in order that He might redeem us. For God saw that we were of such value that it was worth enough to go ahead and create us even though it meant that He'd have to redeem us than to not create us at all. Now, would you begin a project if you knew that that project was going to cost you your son? I don't think I'd do that. If I knew that this project that I was about to invest in was going to cost the life of my son, I don't think I'd follow through on that, but God did. Why, He deemed you worthy so of such value that He was even willing to give His Son for you even before He ever created you. Now, how do you assess the value of something? You assess the value of something by how much it costs. How much are you worth to God? Why, you're worth His Son. I mean, everything He had, He emptied heaven when He redeemed you. That's how much you're worth. Don't you go around telling everybody that you have no value. That just insults redemption. I don't know if you've ever been into the Browning Library or not, that museum down there at Baylor. And in the Browning Library, there is this um, lock of Robert Browning's hair, white lock of hair, in this case, under lock and behind guard. Now, I'm getting some white hair. I don't anticipate anybody's going to come and get a lock of it and put it in a case under guard. What makes that so valuable? Because of its owner. What makes you so valuable? Because of your owner. Who owns you? Why, God owns you. He paid for you. He purchased you. You are worthy in the third place because of the provision of the Lord. Now, I have a feeling that some of us uh, kind of, you know, think that God's doing the best He can with what He's got. You know, bless His heart. He don't have much, and He's just doing the best He can with us, with what He's got. And we just get so excited and so thrilled when a Hollywood movie star gets saved. You know, and we send him all over the country 
paying his way, you know, Southern Baptists just fly him all over the country to give their testimonies. These Hollywood movie stars, Zeb, you know, whatever it is, this guy on Green Acres. I mean, he made more trips at the expense of Southern Baptists than anybody I've ever seen because we got so excited that this guy on TV got saved as though this, this man was adding some credence and credibility to God. And we just kind of feel like, well, you know, we're just nothing, but God's just kind of getting along the best He can. Let me tell you what. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. And the weaker you are, the stronger you are. And the weaker you are, the more God can use you. Now look, God's not getting along with the best, the best He can with what He's got. The Scripture says that when God saved you, He spiritually gifted you and He has given you everything you need to be just like Jesus. You think you're not equipped? He has given you everything you need to be just like Jesus. What we need is just more weak folks. Somebody said, you know, every time a rich man moves to town, boy, all the churches converge on him. I'm here to tell you, we don't need no, any more rich folks in First Baptist Church. We need some poor folks in First Baptist Church. Isn't that strange for me to say that? I bet you, I ain't getting any men's there, I guarantee you. I, a few, I saw a few struggling to catch their breath. They gasped. Somebody said, you mean we don't need any rich folks at First Baptist Church? Yes, if they die till they're riches. You know what we need more than anything else? That's some poor folks, you know, or some rich folks that have died to their riches and allowed God to equip them and give them provision that He can give them for service and effective ministry. Okay, value yourself. Better get off of that. Get on to something else. Accept yourself is number two. Verse 27 says, Is there anybody who can add 18 inches to his stature? Now, I don't know whether I'm reading into something into that or not, but it looks like he's, he's, he's saying to these folks, these Jews who are kind of short and squatty. No, don't worry about being 18 inches, you know, tall. Accept yourself just like you are. Accept yourself. Now, the reason why we don't accept ourselves as we are is because we think we're so unexciting. I wish I could be somebody else, look like somebody else. I'm so unexciting. I'm so bland. When I was pastor out Seminole, this guy came to me. It's a, a, a farmer. He had a large farm, and he, owned, he, his, he and his father owned two cotton gins. I mean, he was pretty well hooked up. And he came to me and said, Gerald, the, the Lord is calling me to preach. And I wasn't surprised because I, could, I, I was seeing that God was really dealing in his life. He was kind of convicted about something, and he was restless all the time. I said, well, Buster, I'm not a bit surprised. God's calling you to preach. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to have a farm sale. I'm going to sell out. I'm going to sell my gin to my father, get my interest in it. He said, I'm going to sell my land. He said, I'm going to seminary. I said, well, great, Buster. That's marvelous. And we kind of just kind of got all excited there in my study. I said, you get down there to seminary, and one of these days God will call you to one of these little churches, and you'll be pastor, and, and you'll just love it. I could tell that wasn't what he wanted me to say. He said, no, God's not going to call me like that. He said... He said one day, it's a true story. He said one day, just the other day, he said I was standing out in my field. He said as far as I could see, I could see cotton stalks, cotton. He was a cotton farmer. He said I could just see cotton everywhere. He said all of a sudden, he said I just saw people wherever there was a cotton stalk. I saw people. 
and said, God told me that I was going to preach to multitudes of folks. He said, I was going to preach to people like Billy Graham does to thousands of people. I thought, oh, Buster, you're in for a rude awakening. And uh, so Buster said, now that's what's going to happen to me. And he said, I'm just going down to seminary because God's called me to preach to thousands. And so he went out to seminary and uh, sold out, went to seminary. Six months later, he came dragging home. And he was just kind of like a cow dog, you know, just beaten, defeated. And he didn't come to church for a while. I mean, several Sundays he didn't come. So I went out to see Buster. I said, well, what's going on here, Buster? He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really discouraged. He said, I just knew God was, he said, I got out of the seminary. He said, preachers are dive a dozen down there. He said, man, you run into one every time you turn around. He said, not only did I not get to preach to multitudes of people, he said, I didn't even get to preach. And I said, I just kind of screwed up my courage. And I said, Buster, now, God didn't call you to be Billy Graham, but God did call you to be Buster Crossland. I said, when you're willing to accept the fact that you're Buster Crossland, then God will use you. And that really struck old Buster right in the heart. I mean, it just what he needed to hear. These folks are here the other day, the Foots from Seminole, Texas. I said, well, how's old Buster doing? They said, Buster is doing great. He's got him a little church outside of Seminole. Has now, when you build up a waistline like mine, you know, now you can't blame God for that. I'm not going to accept this. But God did make me physically like I am and you. And for a long time, I just couldn't stand to hear myself preach, you know, my high-pitched voice. And if Joanne ever had a tape on, she'll, she'll, she'll say amen to this. I come, if I were to come into my office and she had one of my tapes on, I'd say, turn that thing off. I couldn't stand to hear myself. That's the truth. I'm trying to learn to accept myself just as I am. When you don't accept yourself as you are, you know what you're doing? You're accusing God of poor workmanship. And He don't like that. Accept yourself spiritually. By that I mean accept where God has placed you to, to serve. Now, I want you to turn, I'm going to show you a perfect example of that. It's Psalms 1. Would you turn with me to Psalm 1? The first Psalm. Ron Dunn has a sermon on this called Bloom Where You're Planted. I want to show you something. He says in Psalm 1, verse 3, he said, And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. That word is transplanted. He'll be like, be like a tree that's put over here and transplanted over here at this place. Now watch. Which yields its fruit in its season. Its fruit. Now aren't you glad that, every, there's, just one, that there's not just one kind of fruit? That, you know, we wouldn't have peaches if it's all apples, you see. Now... God has put you in this place, in a particular place, for you to yield your fruit, to yield its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. It even has a different leaf. Everybody has his own place. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Isn't that marvelous? It says that God has a place for every one of us and, and we all have the, have the joy of bearing our fruit as God has gifted us. And we have our leaves. You bloom where you're planted. 
I wish that I could get across tonight how urgent it is for you just to be where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to be doing. And don't be worrying about the fact that somebody can teach better than you or preach better than you or sing better than you. Just be God's people where God has placed you and let God gift you where you are. All right, number three. After we've valued ourselves and we've accepted ourselves, we need to forget ourselves. Now that's what he's talking about in this passage of Scripture. He's talking about living on the faith principle. Forget about yourself. Now you can drive yourself to distraction worrying about yourself. Putting your finger on your pulse all the time, both physically and spiritually feeling your pulse. I know some folks that they, they worry about whether or not their service of God is even motivated in the right, with the right motivation. And all they do is just kind of uh, look at themselves in this morbid introspection. Let me tell you something. Humility is not whipping yourself. Humility is forgetting yourself. And quit worrying about what people are going to think. And quit worrying about what you're going to look like and how you're going to sound. Forget about yourself. Only the people who value themselves and accept themselves are able to forget themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to examine our lives from time to time. But let me show you the difference between a morbid introspection and, and, and a, and a self-examination. A self-examination is periodic and it always leads to self-correction. Morbid introspection is continuous, is perpetual, and it always leads to self-condemnation. If you are perpetually going through this process of introspection and it leads to self-condemnation, just whipping yourself all the time, listen, you're not pleasing God with that. But if periodically you examine yourself, that leads to self-correction. That's what God desires. Forget yourself. One last thing, please, and hang right here, because I want to talk about the final thing that helps us to get right with ourselves, and that is to consecrate yourself. Now, verse 33 says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you did an, an etymology of that, you would see that that's in the present tense. It means to seek and to keep on seeking. It has to be a continuous thing. It must be a daily thing, a continual habit to seek and to keep on seeking. Now the kingdom of God is not heaven. The kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is a way of life. It is the rule of God in your life. Now what he's saying is this. You need to seek and to keep on seeking the rule of God in your life. As a daily habit, that's what we're trying to talk about this morning. As a daily habit, you need to seek the control of God in your life. The rule of God in your life. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is God's way of doing things. God's way of doing things. All right, if I'm going to consecrate myself, then every day of my life, I must seek God's rule and God's right. 
I must seek God's way of doing things. I must seek God's rule of my life. Now, how do you do that? Well, Lee alluded to it in his prayer this morning. You get up in the morning and you find some time. You make some time. You designate some time. You you plan some time. And you get into the Word of God. And you seek the rule of God for the day. That is, you ask God to take control of your life today. You seek His rule. Now, if you're living, if there's any disobedience in your life, any rebellion, you'll have to get that straightened out right away. There's a sermon, I don't know who preached it, called Up-to-Date Obedience, where, where you've got to get this obedience to God up to date. Now, if there's any rebellion, any not-sows in your life, He's not ruling, He's not Lord, you see. So every morning you seek God's rule, God's control, God's domination of your life, and then you seek His way of doing things. His way of doing things. Wouldn't it make a difference in this church if we did that every day? What is our way of doing things? Our way of doing things is manipulating people. Our way of doing things is retaliating when people do us wrong. Our way of doing things is, is, is self-motivated and, and has selfish interest at heart. God's way of doing things. Now, when you get in the Scripture and you read through the, the Gospels, you're going to find God's way of doing things. You're going to see it lived out in the life of Jesus. And you seek that every day. All of the time and energy of your life directed toward that. Now, if I could kind of paraphrase what Jesus is saying is this. Okay, boys, if you're going to worry about anything... Worry about the right things. Worry about the rule and the right, the rule and the right of God in your life. The rule and the way of God. Worry about that. I mean, spend all, spend this energy and this time and this these thoughts that you've been spending on worrying about clothes and food and what people say. You spend that on the rule and the right of God, and see if it doesn't make things a lot better. You know, the Christian life is really pretty simple after all. The Christian life is just that I have only one worry, one thing to worry about. And that is, am I seeking Him first? Am I really seeking Him first? Are you? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, I pray now in this moment that remains of decision time that you'll help us to see how important we are to you. Help us to accept ourselves and to value ourselves. And then, God, help us to lay aside our selfish interest for yours. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. And I pray, God, if there are some tonight that you're calling to some decision, they'll not be disobedient to the heavenly call that we'll all go away saying that we've confessed our sins up to date we've obeyed God and now we're going out to live His way under His rule I pray that that'll happen here that lives will be changed here tonight that a difference will be made because I pray in Jesus name now, there are three invitations. The first invitation. I, I know there's lost people here tonight. 
There are people who have never been saved sitting right on this auditorium. For all eternity, you're separated from God. The invitation is for you to come just like these children, just like this mother. Same way. To place your faith, to put your trust in Jesus Christ and Him only. Not in a church, not in a baptism, not in works, lest any man should boast. But in Jesus Christ, who died for you. God saw you so important that He gave His Son for you. He emptied out heaven for you. What are you going to do about a man who will hang on a cross and die for you? Would you, oh, you who pass by, would you treat that as though, as though it were nothing? Won't you come tonight and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ? You're so important to Him. Second invitation is for those of us who need to join the church. Now, God has reason for you being in Durant. He wants you to bloom where you're planted. He put you here to serve God, and the way you serve Him is in the church. Come on and place your life here. Even if you're just here for this year, do what God wants you to do. There may be some of us who, who've never been really used of God because we have such a poor opinion about ourselves. And we've tried to believe that to feel worthless is to be spiritual. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your neighbor, and yourself. Maybe you just need to come to refresh your commitment to Christ, your value to Him. These are the invitations. We'll just sing two stanzas of this hymn we know well. We invite you to come. If you're coming, you come right on the first while we sing. Just stand and sing.